should I say welcome, Changemakers? New year, new intro. So let me know what you think. It feels surreal to be hosting this interview today, not because I have with me truly one of the most impressive women I've ever met. I mean, she is the Global Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships and the lead benefit auctioneer at Chrissy's Auction House. So she's pretty damn impressive. Yet, despite our awe-inspiring guests, you know, this interview feels even more surreal because I was quite unsure that we would all make it to 2021. But we are here. So amen to that. And enough talk of the troubles because today we have with us someone who exemplifies everything we want to be, which is smart, stylish, and undoubtedly successful. So welcome Lydia Finette to The Catalyst. Oh, Audrey, thank you so much. And what an intro. Good Lord. I wish I could start my day just listening to that. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Of course, of course. I can send you the intro audio. <laughs> I always have it. So Lydia, I first encountered you when you were giving a sort of fireside chat to the ladies of The Synergist, which is a national network of women in investing. During your chat, I was just awestruck when you said what I believe to be one of the most powerful sentences in the English language. You said, and I really want to give a pause here because I think what you said deserves a preface. So you said, I can raise a million dollars in 10 minutes. And when you said that, I felt a spark in the Zoom meeting. And I'm not even trying to be funny, a little. <laughs> but I, I believe that's a really powerful statement, especially as you're a woman who said that statement in a room full of women or a virtual room full of women. So if you could, Lydia, for the Catalyst community, could you give us a background as to how you can raise a million dollars in 10 minutes? And what is it that you do and why did you choose to do it? Absolutely. I know it is funny to say that I can raise a million dollars in 10 minutes. I actually probably could raise a million dollars in five minutes, if you let me, depending on which stage I'm on. So I work for Christie's Auction House, and most people think, if they think anything about the auction world or know anything about the auction world, which frankly I didn't until I was in my late, late teens in college and read an article about this magical place called Christie's Auction House. Um, Christie's Auction House is a place where we sell art and we sell jewelry, we sell luxury items. And so if you do know anything about the auction world, then you would probably think that I was an auctioneer who sold Picasso's. But although I work at Christie's, I'm actually a charity auctioneer. So my job is to stand on stage at charity auctions and raise money for nonprofits who need it. And in that vein, I'm often on stage in front of a thousand people. And one element of being an auctioneer is something we call a paddle raise. And when you first start taking auctions, you kind of dread the paddle raise because essentially what you're doing is standing on stage in front of a thousand people and just asking them for money. And don't we all hate to do that, right? Isn't that what we all talk about, especially women? Oh, I hate asking for things. I, I'm not confident enough to ask for things. And because I have been doing it for so long, I have completely gotten over the fear of asking things, which I think is probably the greatest gift in the world. Especially for a woman. Yes, especially for a woman. And so I truly believe when I say that statement, you know, it was 16 years in the making of being on stage night after night and at the beginning in those early years really wincing when I went in for that paddle raise and hating having to ask. And then what I realized over time was I was asking the wrong way. I wasn't motivating people and inspiring them to give. I was just asking them for money. And asking people to do something often takes a story. And so when I stand on stage, instead of saying something like, 
ladies and gentlemen, I'm here for X nonprofit and we want to raise money to make sure that people have a service. I take something that I've heard earlier in the program. For instance, if I'd heard something about a person who had been adopted, I do a lot of auctions for foster care. And in particular, I remember hearing this one gentleman say, you know, when I was living with my parents before I was adopted, there was never a sense or a need for anything that had an expectation. So I just sort of lived my life the way I thought I should live my life because that was what I saw in front of me. And I didn't, I was never expected to do anything. And when I came to this new family, I was fostered and then adopted. What I realized, like, I was expected to clean my room. I was expected to go to school. I was expected to graduate from college. And when I did that, I was expected to live a good life. And so I said to the audience, we heard the expectation on this gentleman. I, as the auctioneer, expect you to hit this fundraising goal. So don't let me down. Right. And so that is what I've learned about making a million dollars in 10 minutes. It's, it's asking for the money. It is inspiring people to give and it is motivating them to do so through language. The power of language and most importantly, the power of expectations. You know, when we talk about equity, people often talk about access to resources. Mm -hmm. But I think even a bigger thing and something we don't talk about is just your general parental expectations on you or even societal expectations on you. And I think oftentimes people who aren't expected to be great, when they are great, that's where imposter syndrome comes from, right? It's like, oh, wow, I'm here, but no one expected me to be here. So it's kind of like a dreadful- What do I do now? <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, in the lens of benefiting charity, I, I think it's so impactful that you expect people to give. Why wouldn't you give, right? This is such an important, an important cause. So I love that, expectating or expecting and then using stories. So what I find- fascinating about what you do is that it has everything to do with sort of arousing the hearts, the minds, and most importantly, the wallets of people for the explicit benefit of charity. And, you know, you've been at Christie's for 20 years now. Incredible. I mean, that's a career. So in in your run, what has been the most interesting lot you've ever auctioned off? Well, it's fun because for charity, I get to auction off these hilarious moments, right? And when I go to meet with charities for the first time, a lot of them will say, oh, well, you know, I was thinking of putting my mother's grandmother's sister's quilt that she made 10 years ago. And I always say to people, think about what you would want to purchase if you had all the money in the world, which let's be honest, when I'm at these charities, that's who I'm in front of, people who have unlimited resources. What people want is access to things that are completely priceless. Right. And one thing that I often find really goes well is something very simple. So I think about doing something for the Central Park Conservancy. I live in New York City and in Central Park is beloved here. You know, I think in the 1970s and 1980s, it was really overrun and it was not a place that people wanted to be. And so the private sector really stepped up and started donating to clean up the park so that it was a place that people could enjoy. And so, you know, we were auctioning off trips and vacation homes and all these wonderful things. And then somebody said, I'd like to auction off the opportunity to go sit underneath a tree with the gardener who created the plan for the park the way that it is right now. And this man had been in the organization for 30 years and they ended up raising $50,000. Someone gave $50,000 for a picnic lunch. And I was sort of like, what are we serving at this picnic lunch is the question. And then the gardener stood up and was like, I'll do it as many times as you'll pay that money because all the money's going to the park. 
And so, you know, I often love everything from you know, Bruce Springsteen's guitar while I'm standing next to him at Madison Square Garden and Madonna, a dance lesson with Madonna. Like those are amazing things, but the ones that I love are the ones that actually cost nothing, like maybe $10 to get sandwiches, but then people just give money to give money. And those are the ones that I love the most because those are the ones that really tug at the heartstrings of every single person in the room. So it's not the, it's not the sort of billion dollar X, but it is pretty fun to, to watch that all happen. And I love that. Just the idea that people want to be a part of something that they can always cherish. Yeah. Right, tell their friends about it, you know, tell their grandchildren about it. And, and I think it just speaks to the sort of sentimental nature of human beings, which I think we sometimes get out of touch with depending, but it always comes back in different ways. It always comes back. So I am someone who is a bit of a geek. Okay. And this is self-proclaimed. I'm very proud. <laughs> Take that title for myself. <laughs> and so in my research for this episode, I've discovered that you've raised over half a billion dollars, which is a huge amount, not for some people, but for us, it's a huge amount. I think it's a huge amount for anyone, honestly. (laughs) For nonprofits globally, which is absolutely insane. In my book, that makes you a powerhouse. And one of the interesting tidbits about you is that you've even auctioned off, or not auctioned off, you've auctioneered an auction in Saudi Arabia, which is just the coolest thing ever. So could you tell us what it means in terms of impact to have raised that much money for charity and to do so in different cities and different countries. Absolutely. I think that the most exciting part of my job is, first of all, to have the opportunity to do this because it really is such an incredible thing to see. And when I first started taking auctions, I was quite young. I was 24. And I was sort of I tried out with a lot of people who were about 15 years older than me. And we started with a class of 20 when we ended up with four at the end. And I was kind of the unknown. They, they said, you know, you have something that we know will appeal to audiences, but we don't really know what to do with you because first of all, you're a woman, but also you're so much younger than everyone else that we don't even think people will take you seriously. So we'll just send you to all the ones that people don't want to take. And I was 24 living in New York. I didn't really know anyone. And I, I remember thinking, this is amazing. I am going to get to take all the auctions that nobody else wants to take. And I'll go to all of these places that nobody else wants to go. You know, it was so exciting. And I think that what has been so amazing is to watch over the years as the dollars are implemented. So some of these auctions I've taken for 12, 13 years and, you know, buildings have been built because of a paddle raise, you know, children's lives have changed because they received grants as a result of these charity auctions. And people are so happy to tell you that story when you go. And because you become almost a part of the organization going year after year, it really, it's such a selfish thing because I get so much joy out of it, walking back into a room and seeing what they've been able to do with the money that we raised in that moment on stage. So I think that would sort of be the first part of it. I mean, the travel part of it and the opportunities that charity auctioneering has given me are beyond my wildest expectations. So last year, actually two years ago, I think I've forgotten 2020. So back to 2019, let's just uh, forget that year. 2019 was the year that my book came out and there was an auction, an opportunity for an auction. Thank you. Um, There was an opportunity for an auction in Saudi Arabia. And the CEO of our company called me and said, do you want to fly to Saudi Arabia and take an auction? And I'm all gut. You know, my first answer, of course, is yes, of course. And then my second question after, you know, a 10 second pause was, do they know that I'm a woman? (laughs) Because, you know, that's a very valid question. 
if you live in America, it doesn't seem from the outside looking in that Saudi Arabia is a place that's looking for a woman who wrote a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, if I'm honest. And that is my perception of Saudi Arabia. And this is the reason that I am reminded time and time again of the importance of travel. Because what I saw when I arrived in Saudi Arabia was certainly women, you know, in burqas wearing, you know, they're, they're covered. Certainly there's no question, but meeting women and talking to women over there is a very different thing than what I, my perception going in there. I mean, I will be honest, I was petrified. I remember calling off at like our Dubai office and asking the gentleman who put me in touch with the gallery that I was taking the auction for in, in Saudi Arabia, what do I wear? And he kind of laughed. He sort of said, I, I don't, I have no idea. Like, why would he ever know? He's a man. He doesn't have to worry about that. But I was worried about it. And so I, he put me in touch with a friend of his. And of course, I'd never met this woman and she lived in New York, but we had never met. And she very kindly offered to send me her abayas to wear, which are basically sort of cloaks. If, as a Western woman, you don't necessarily have to cover your head in the same way that you would, especially in Jeddah, which is more of a port city. So a little bit more Western in terms of their thinking than most places in Saudi Arabia. And I remember getting this bag of abayas the day before I left and pulling one out. So you can't tell this on Zoom, but I'm 5'11". <laughs> I think she was 5'2". Because the abayas were literally could have fit my eight-year-old daughter. And I was just sort of I mean, I didn't know what to do because you can't just pick up an abaya in New York City. And so, you know, I sort of put on a long dress to the floor and threw this abaya over the top and I got off the airplane and my, my body was shaking. I was so scared to be there. I didn't know if I could talk to people. My luggage didn't arrive. I mean, it was just a comedy of errors. And after I'd sort of gotten through the initial thing, I had that moment that I think a lot of us have where... It was almost like I had to talk to myself. It was midnight in Jeddah. I didn't have my luggage and I was standing in the airport. I didn't know what to do. And I just said, okay, you need to pull yourself together, Lydia. This is a city. They have shopping malls. You can figure this out. Put a scarf over your head. You have something that goes to the floor. Get in the car and go to the hotel. And from that moment on, I was like, we are just going to live this the way that I live in New York City. I'm going to wing it and I'll figure it out. And at the end of the day, it was amazing. It was an amazing opportunity that, you know, I was only there for 26 hours and I feel like it opened my eyes in a whole different world to the Middle East. So very important to travel. My mom is British and she's always said, you know, people always think that if someone does something different, it's bad. And as children, we used to be like, oh, I don't want to try that. It's gross. She's like, it's not gross, honey. It's different. It's just different and different. It's not bad. And I always remember that. Like, I remember thinking that on the trip too, just because that I don't eat figs every single meal doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. Right. And I grew up in the South, but I live in New York. And I remember thinking when I came up here, this is very different, <laughs> not bad, just different. So I do, I do think that that is, that's what you learn in travel. There are different ways of doing things. None of them are not bad, just different. I love that. It's a nice, it's a nice motto to remind us. It is. You'll find yourself applying it to things that you wouldn't even think about before, but now you're kind of like, well, that's not bad. It's just different. You know, you've had this incredible journey as a benefit auctioneer. And one of the stories you shared with us when you were speaking to the ladies at the Synergist is you were auctioning off something and there was a man sitting in the front row with interesting glasses and a sort of banter arose out of that. And so I was wondering if you could please retell that story because I love it. 
story. And you know what resulted from that encounter. And I think once people hear that story, they'll kind of see, you know, the importance of authenticity. And if you could also speak on that and how it's benefited your career. Absolutely. So this is my sort of favorite favorite way of explaining how the book came to be, because I was on stage, as you said, and it was for an auction that is Uma Thurman's one of the founders of it. It's called Room to Grow. It helps babies and families ages zero to three who don't really have the resources or the knowledge of how to raise children or how to really make sure that they have a head start in life. And so it's called Room to Grow. And I was on stage with Uma and then Uma got off and I opened it up to the audience to start the bidding, which is often a way I'll do it in order to make the audience feel comfortable. Because if you have an auctioneer from Christie's and I say, okay, we're going to start the bidding for the first lot, which is you know, a home in Mexico with seven bedrooms or whatever it is, a sort of crazy, beautiful house. I'll start this at $25,000. Every single person in the audience starts talking because nobody can actually bid that much except for maybe two people. So I always say to the audience, ladies and gentlemen, where will we start my bidding this evening? And typically there's someone who raises their hand and then I'll kind of joke with them to get the bidding up. So they raise their hand and they say something like, you know, in this case, the man had thick bottle room glasses. So I said, yeah, you look a little bit like Clark Kent, you know, Superman here to save the evening. Where are we starting my bidding this evening? And you can immediately, as the auctioneer, if you've been an auctioneer as long as I have, you can tell if they like it or not. And this man clearly liked it. And so for the rest of the auction, if the audience started to sort of buzz because they start talking because nobody wants to sit through an auction, um, I immediately would go back to him and be like, Clark Kent, could you help me quiet the, the crowd? Or, you know, how, how tight was that phone booth that you were changing in on your way up here? I mean, it just became sort of a silly thing. And at the end, he came up to me and he said, I'm Clark Kent. And I said, yeah, you don't know this, buddy, but there's one in every room. Uh, and I said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. He goes, but more importantly, I'm, Uma, I'm Uma's agent, Jason Weinberg, and we want to take you out for breakfast to talk to you about what we're going to do with this talent of yours. And, you know, I remember thinking, I remember saying in a very calm voice, yeah, no, that sounds great. And then thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out. Like this is, this is my wildest dream coming true. And so we ended up going to breakfast and we talked about all of these ideas that I had, but there was this one idea that I had been talking about for eight years and had done nothing about. And that was, I had this idea to write a book and it was really to write a book about what we talked about earlier about getting on stage and inspiring and motivating people. And also just this confidence that I have acquired from being on stage for so long, because so many women come up to me when I get off stage and say, I could never do that. I could never sell anything. I hate asking questions of people. I hate, you know, asking for things. How did you get to do that? How did you learn to do this? And so I sort of presented that idea um, you know, maybe I could do this and maybe I could write about a book about it. And they both said, yeah, that sounds great. And, sort of talked about it. What they didn't know, what I knew at that point was that I was pregnant with my first child. But, you know, and I, and I say in, in that moment, like what they didn't know, but I knew that I was also not feeling well at all. I was quite sick through my pregnancies. And so all of these like ideas for writing this book just didn't come about right? They never really came about because I was not really thinking about writing a book. And it wasn't until years later that the New York Times called to do a piece where they asked me basically to walk around New York City and show them what my day looked like. It was a day in the life piece where, you know, I take the, I go to work during the day, I go home and at that point I had two kids and I was pregnant with my third and I take auctions at night and I get on stage using that authenticity that we talk about as my pregnancy, I would say to the crowd, 
you know, who is more uncomfortable right now? Is it you or is it me? Um, because I feel like being on stage, you have to use whatever it is to tell that story and to make it fun for the audience and to engage them. And at the end of that night, they asked me what I did before I went to sleep at night. And I said that um, I either read a book or I write this book that I'm writing. I wasn't writing a book, by the way. I had written nothing. I just told them I was writing it. And so all of a sudden with the New York Times prints that you're writing a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, you have to get that proposal ready before it runs the New York Times. And the book ended up selling within a week to a publisher that's on the fourth floor of the same building that I've worked in for 20 years. So I like to start by saying, you know, I have been sitting on top of my dreams for the past 20 years of my life, but it wasn't until I did something about it that things actually started to happen. And all of those lessons are what this book is about. It's about that authenticity piece, about feeling confident on stage and feeling confident in life. Um, because if you have that, then you can live your life and you can also go after your goals and your dreams. That was a long story. <laughs> there were so many nuggets in what you said, and I love a good long story what you said about sitting on top of your dreams. I think sometimes people, or I'll, I'll speak for me, I didn't realize what I was sitting on, you know, until I was like, wow, this is actually something I can use. This is something I can use to grow. And I think the most important thing about life, and I think the most beautiful is that we can always use what we have to get to where we want to go. You know, we don't have to wait until the moment is right because there is no right moment. Unless of course, New York Times says you're gonna do something, then you always have to do it. Absolutely. And I said, I, I think I told you this when we when I spoke at Synergist, but the crazy thing about the New York Times article was, you know, women's empowerment, although has always, you know, people have talked about it for a long time, it wasn't really until the Me Too article came out about Harvey Weinstein and the New York Times that that was really the catalyst, right, for the movement. That was the groundswell that we were waiting for. And my piece came out two weeks after that. It was slated to run in April of that year, and it didn't. And they, they held it till October because of the philanthropy issue. And so I often think that if I if that article had come out in April, I don't know that the book would have sold because who wanted to read a book about powerful women in April of 2017? I mean, it really wasn't the topic that it is now. It wasn't forefront of people's minds. It wasn't the forefront of publishers' minds. And so that timing was incredibly lucky for me. And I was so excited to sort of harness that wave and take that message right. forward. And it's an important message too. It's a very important message, especially when you're talking earlier about women who come up to you after you get off on the auctioning stage and they're just like, I could never do that. How do you do that? There's a sort of necessity that exists for women like yourself, you know, incredible, successful, smart, stylish women who are able to inspire other women to use their voices because one of my favorite sayings is closed mouths don't get fed. And if you never ask, the answer is always no. So it doesn't hurt. It doesn't. And it really is an amazing gift to get over that fear. When I did one of my first talks around the book, this woman, I, I'll never forget this. She stood up at the end and she said, I don't really have a question, but I will say I worked at a call center and I have been rejected over 10,000 times. So I like to say that I'm Teflon. And I said to her, I think that that is the greatest gift that you could ever get in your life. The ability to never care if the word is no, because then what do you not ask for, right? If you really care, then you could really do anything you wanted if you just kept going with your vision and did not worry about rejection or failure.
There's a sort of audacity that gets owned in you when you realize that even if the answer is no, you'll always get to where you want to go. Rejection isn't rejection, it's merely redirection. A door will open somewhere, and it doesn't really matter which door or how you get there, but that you got there. Look, there are all these case studies, and there's one that I've thought about so often during COVID. Martha Stewart said it success seldom comes in the form that you think it will. And I can't even tell you how many times over the past year I have thought to myself, you know, I've been on the charity auction stage for so many years. And that always to me was success was a marker of just 70 auctions a year and more requests than I could even, you know, field if I tried. And all of a sudden there's no stage, there's nowhere to go. There are no groups of 700 people. And so speaking was really something that I loved and have always loved. And that really became my pivot for the year. Um, and then out of speaking, I started doing master classes because I started getting the same question over and over again about sales, the same question over and over again about public speaking. And so kind of realizing that, you know, that what success looked like here in 2019 doesn't define the rest of my life, that success in 2020 and 2021 can be speaking until the auction stage comes back, or maybe that becomes a smaller part of my life now that my children are getting older, you know, so that evolution is such an exciting part of life. And, and again, as you said, like, it isn't about one door opening. It's about there's a door, I'm going to follow it. And I'm going to make the best of what's in front of me. Life is so subtle that you don't even realize the door is opening until you've passed through it. And so I, I love that. And what you said about getting more, you know, requests for auctions than you could possibly do. And so my next question to you, because I'm a student of gratitude. So I always believe there's something to be thankful for. And I also believe that as we become more and more successful, we have to say no more of the time evident by your career. Out of all the opportunities you've had to say no to, which one are you most thankful for? In the sense that it's signaled to you and also signified that, you know, you're a very successful woman, but more than that, you're highly sought after. When I'm on stage, I'll get off stage and there's at least once a year, there's somebody who's standing stage right with a business card that has a suggestion for what I should do. So I had a huge financial institution once in the middle of an auction. So typically an auction is a live auction followed by a paddle raise. And I try to do them all in one thing. So I say being an auctioneer is like a little bit like the dentist, like you have to do it. You want to do it. You want to, you know, it's good for you, but you don't really necessarily want to do it, but you have to do it. So that's the auction, right? I just want to get in and get out. It's like a surgical strike. And so I remember getting off stage, they'd split the live auction and the paddle raise. And there was a gentleman from a financial institution. And he said, we want you to come and work with us. I think you'd be great leading a private equity group. And, you know, what I like about my job is it's exciting. No two days are ever the same. When you work in an auction house, it's like a museum that is changing every four days. And you travel and you have these experiences. Is the pay what it is at a financial institution? Absolutely not. But over the course of my life, I would trade money for the experiences that I've had 10 times over. So if I need to have additional revenue streams to stay in the job that I'm in and stay in the company that I'm in, I'm willing to do it because it's so much a part of who I am to travel and do all of these cool things and be working with a company that I absolutely adore. So that is a decision that I made many years ago. So when he did that, when he came up, I remember thinking I should, I should take this one to the end. I should run this tape, right? Let, let's see what, let's see how this works out. So started doing the interviews and everything. And I remember thinking like, as we were getting sort of towards the end, like this is not the right decision for me. And I said, no, 
not even to a job offer, just to even continuing the conversations, because I knew that the answer ultimately would be no. So that was good. And also the conversations about the Real Housewives, I feel like over the years have definitely been, you know, there have been a number of people who are like, you should be a Real Housewife of New York City. And I remember my being sort of like, I'm not even married, so I don't know that I could do that. Also, I'm living in like a fifth floor walk up. I'm not sure that they want to take that. So um, I feel like now might be a better time for me to do it, but like just no interest whatsoever. So those are sort of fun, bizarre no's, but ones that I'm always happy that I made because I knew in my gut they were not the right thing. One thing that I would love to say just to anyone who's listening to this too is I feel like fear is an incredible, it's an incredible thing too, because the other thing I've learned now this far into my career and into my life is that if I'm nervous and I feel like I'm pushing back against something, it usually means that I should do it. So, you know, I set up a meeting right before the end of the year with my editor and my agent to talk about my next book because I want to write it, but I haven't done it because I know it's a lot of work and I have a lot of other things to do, but I want to do it. So I wanted to push myself to do it. So even though before I got on that call, I'm like, oh gosh, like now I'm going to have to write another book. Um, I still did it. And I feel like anytime I feel that sort of, oh, this feels scary. This, I don't know if I want to do this. I mean, even Saudi Arabia for me, what did I say? I was like, could barely breathe when I got off the plane. I was so scared. I knew I was doing the right thing because I was pushing myself past that level of comfort that I have really acquired in my life. Like there is a level of comfortability with my job, with so many of the things I do, even the charity auctions. I mean, after you get on stage at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen, with Jerry Seinfeld and John Stewart and Seth Meyers all on stage around you during an auction, where do you go from that, you know? And I think there might be a difference, or there is a difference, and maybe it's just semantics, between discomfort and being uncomfortable, right? And as we come towards the end of our interview, I just want to say thank you so much, Lydia. I've loved this conversation so much, just all the gems, all the tidbits. And my last question for you is going to be, what does it mean to be the most powerful woman in the room? And why did you write a book on it? I wrote a book on being the most powerful woman in the room because when I stand on stage in front of a thousand people and feel completely confident in my voice and my message, I feel like I am living my full life. And when I have that feeling that I am living my life to the fullest, I'm such an oversharer. I have to share it. And so really that's the reason. I think I feel like I hit a point in my life where it just felt right. It felt like everything was going in the right direction. The, all of these pieces that for so long seemed to be in different places all came together. And I feel like if you feel that, you should share that. You know, I like to say that up until the age of 21, you're at the mercy of other people's thoughts as they craft who they think you should be. 21 till 40 for me was really about muddling through that and figuring out who I really was. And then now that you know, I hit 40 and all of a sudden I, re I realized that I needed to start passing it back, right? What is this information for if I'm not giving it to someone else? So that is really why I wrote the book. And I was so proud of that book and I am still proud of that book. I actually read the book. I reread it during COVID because I wanted people to understand that part of being the most powerful woman in the room is owning your own power. And I think we can all lose it. I certainly felt I, like I lost way, my way in March and April. And something about reading that book and sort of coming back into that and then finding myself and realizing again that, that that's the same message. It was the message of the book all along. Own your power. 
because it's all in you. Nobody else can give it to you and nobody else can take it away. That's the most important thing in life for both men and women is owning your power and that you give yourself power, right? That you give yourself authority by being confident in yourself and just using your voice to ask for whatever it is you want, no matter how far-fetched. Absolutely. I I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I live in New York City. I mean, anyone can do it. I love people whose origin stories to their ascension is just so inspiring. My mother always inspires me because she and I were born in Cameroon and here she is with a PhD and I was born in Cameroon and here I am going to Harvard. And, and it's not even the finale. Your next step is in your finale. And so I'm very excited to keep up with you. Well, I'm very excited to keep up with you. Are you kidding? For people in the Catalyst community who want to keep up with you, where should we find you? What should we look out for? Absolutely. So I am all over Instagram always. I do all of my master classes off of Instagram. So if you ever need sales or negotiations, public speaking or networking help, let me know. And I would also say you can follow me on LinkedIn, but keep your eye out for another book titled TBD. And I will be starting a podcast at some point this year. It'll be interviewing power women from across the world. So keep your eyes and ears open. More to, more to come. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lydia. Thank you. So many thank yous. Thank you, Audrey. Normally, the episode ends here. Yet... Here I am, still talking. <laughs> new year, new endings. New year, new expectations, change makers. If you enjoyed this episode with Lydia, let me know. And you can let me know by liking and subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But if you really liked it, visit our website, the-catalyst.net. Leave a comment. Why did you like it? Maybe you didn't like it. Tell me why. Although I do think you liked it, but maybe I'm getting out of myself. And if I am, let me know, you know, in a very nice, polite way, because none of that mean stuff. <laughs> As always, changemakers, welcome. Oh.